Hello and greetings from Singapore. I had the pleasure of chairing the third UN conference on the law of the sea during its two final years, 1981 and 1982. I was also chairman of the preparatory committee for the UN Conference on Environment and Development and I chaired the main committee at the Earth Summit in Rio in June 1992. Based upon those experiences and the experience of having chaired other major conferences, I have learned the following 10 lessons on how to chair effectively major intergovernmental conferences which I'd like to share with you. Lesson number one. Every conference is unique and different from other conferences. Therefore, do not assume that just because you have successfully chaired one conference, chairing the next one will be easy. It, it will not be. Every conference is a, is a major challenge to chair. Thus, after chairing the UN Conference on the Law of the Sea, some of my colleagues assured me that chairing the Earth Summit would be a piece of cake. It wasn't a piece of cake and was a major challenge. Lesson number two, master your brief. There is no substitute for hard work. And as the chair of the conference, you must know every aspect of every item of the agenda of the conference. You have to put in an extra effort to be better informed than any of your colleagues. In other words, you must aspire to become the intellectual leader of the conference and thereby earn the respect of your colleagues among the delegations and also in the secretariat. Lesson number three, try to be a neutral chairman. Do not carry your country's agenda if you are chairing a major conference. Let somebody else speak for your country. And never have a personal agenda. Your only agenda, your only loyalty should be to the conference and to its success. And every delegation should trust you and should learn to confide in you. Therefore, do not violate their trust. Lesson number four, work with the secretariat. Some conference chairmen and chairwomen um, do not work with the secretariat. I think this is a mistake. In my experience, I've always tried to spot the talented, the knowledgeable, and the hardworking members of the secretariat, and I enlist them into my team. I earn their trust and work collegially with them, both on substance, on strategy, on procedures. However, you have to be firm sometimes if the secretariat does not carry out your request. I'll give you one example. Um, at an important meeting of the preparatory committee for the Earth Summit in New York, I had told the secretariat that it being the final day, I had intended to hold the meeting if necessary through the night into the morning and requested that interpreters should be available and on standby. The secretariat did not believe me. And when the midnight came, 
all the interpreters left the UN building and left me with no interpretation. It took me a while to persuade the different language groups other than English to agree to carry on with our work in English. So a lot of valuable time was wasted. I think after that experience, the Secretariat knew that when I said something, I meant to keep it. Lesson number five. Judge your colleagues wisely and choose those who are capable, who appear to enjoy the confidence of their colleagues and have the right temperament to help you chair committees or negotiating groups. Include all these colleagues in what I've called a collegium, representing the, the leadership of the conference. When I was chairing these conferences, my collegium and I met every day to take stock of um, progress in a conference, to strategize and to help nurture, urge, nurture and urge our colleagues to come to a consensus. Lesson number six. If possible, work with your bureau or general committee. However, in recent UN practice, sometimes the bureau is too large, too unwieldy and not effective. If you have a bureau which is huge and not, not effective, then you have to invent a smaller defector bureau. At the Earth Summit, I found that my bureau was too large to be useful. I therefore constituted an executive committee at the conference consisting of the chairs of the five regional groups, the chairs of the major interest groups, and countries that do not belong to any regional or interest group. And I met with this group, which I call the Collegium, every day to take stock of progress in the conference and to help me move the process forward. Lesson number seven. Always be modest and humble. Although you may be the chairman of the conference, you must not behave in an arrogant or haughty manner towards your colleagues. Because if you do so, you will earn ill will instead of goodwill. Develop the important skill of deep listening. Listen to your colleagues and take their concerns and interests into account. Show as much respect for the delegations from the smaller and poorer countries as you do for the delegations from the more powerful and richer countries. I found in chairing conferences that by showing respect to every delegation, no matter how powerful and how powerless it may be, I earn the, the goodwill and respect of my colleagues. And finally, I think it is a good thing if you can try to remember the names of your colleagues. When you are able to remember all their names and call them by their name, instead of just saying um, the distinguished representative of such and such a country, it, it warms their hearts and makes a very immediate connection to them. Lesson number eight. 
be scrupulously fair in chairing meetings. For example, if there is an agreed time limit for statements, for example, 10 minutes, be sure that you have a timekeeper sitting with you or a clock to make sure you apply the same time limit to all delegations. I'll give you an example. When I was chairing the Law of the Sea Conference and because of the shortage of time, we agreed to impose a 10-minute 10 limit, 10 limit on statements. So the, um, the Minister of the Soviet Union was speaking in the plenary. He exceeded his time. I stopped him and politely told him that he had exhausted his time and could he please conclude his statement. Um, he, he complied with my request, but the delegation was not happy. So when the minister of another country from, from the ASEAN group um, spoke, the, my, my Soviet colleagues were timing me to see whether or not I would apply the same rule to an ASEAN minister, which I did. So when this ASEAN minister also exceeded the 10 minutes, I stopped him and said, Mr. Minister, I'm very sorry to be rude, but you have exhausted your 10 minutes and could you please summarise or conclude your statement? So the point is, the rule of law must prevail. You must apply the same rule evenly to all colleagues. Another point, never make fun of a colleague, no matter how incoherent or unclear his or her statement may be. I'll give you an example. A colleague of mine was chairing a meeting and he had not realised that his microphone was on and he made a derogatory statement about a colleague who just completed his statement and the whole conference room erupted with laughter. And of course, the colleague in question was very offended and embarrassed. So never do that. My, my practice is that after listening to a statement, and if the speaker is not clear because English is not his native language, I try to be helpful and summarise his or her main points or points more clearly and more coherently for the speaker. In this way, the speaker also feels obligated to you and, and, and you again earn goodwill from your colleagues. Another point. Some chairmen play favourites. Instead of calling on the speakers in accordance with a list, they will jump the queue and enable more powerful countries to speak first. Never do this. Because your colleagues will be watching you to see whether or not you're a fair chairman, whether you treat all colleagues equally or whether you play favourites. So, Whenever I chair a meeting, I allow the secretariat to keep the speaker's list and I would call upon each delegation to speak in the order in which it has inscribed its name on that list. Lesson number nine. Always be open and transparent with your colleagues. Never be a party to a secret negotiation. I've seen some of my colleagues destroy their reputation and their, their standing by lending their support to secret negotiation that were taking place on the sideline of conferences. 
such secret negotiation will eventually be exposed. And when that happens, your integrity is violated and nobody will trust you again. So never be a party to a secret negotiation and do not allow yourself to be made use of by any delegation as a conduit for its view, its proposal, its preferences. Have everything out in the open. Let every delegation speak for itself and you must always be open and transparent and fair. The important point here is that one of your most important assets as a chair is your integrity. And the moment you lose your integrity, no one will trust you. My 10th and final lesson, and this is a difficult one. You must be good at judging when the timing is right. If you are not good at it and you put a proposal to the, to the conference prematurely, your colleagues will rebuff you. And I've seen this happen many times at the UN. On the other hand, you should not be a procrastinator and lack the courage to sometimes take the bull by the horn and say, the moment for action has come. We have exhausted all efforts at reconciling competing positions, finding a consensus, and it's time to move on. One of your challenges in chairing a major conference is how to miniaturize the conference. The UN now has 192 countries. It is almost impossible to negotiate in a grouping as large as this. But how do you get from 192 to a smaller group where negotiations can take place in a more effective manner? You must first earn your colleagues' trust. Second, ask the plenary of the conference for permission to move the negotiation to a smaller group. And do not be arbitrary and presumptuous in naming the composition of that smaller group, ask the various regional interest groups to name their representatives. Finally, the outcome of negotiations in smaller groups must always be brought back to the plenary for debate and for approval. And if the whole process is transparent, if the outcome is fair, the chances are that the plenary of the conference will endorse the result. I'll give you one example. I was given a very challenging task of challenging, uh, of chairing a negotiation on the financial terms of contracts to mine the mineral resources of the deep seabed. And this is very challenging because the industry doesn't exist there are so many unknown hypotheses and yet the conference insisted that I should arrive at a consensus on the financial terms of mining contracts. I began with a group of about 152 delegations and I found that, that it was too large to negotiate. However, it was very useful in that 
it was a forum in which I was able to bring everybody up to speed so that everybody was equally well informed. From 152, I then asked the plenary's permission to convene a smaller group of financial experts. And I chose a meeting room that could only accommodate approximately 30 colleagues. The plenary trusted me and was very kind to me and allowed me to make this transition from 150 to 30. After several weeks of negotiating in this smaller group of financial experts of about 30, I realized that time had come to make a deal. And in order to make that deal, I decided I need to further miniaturize the negotiating group. And I asked the developing countries, the group of 77, to name three, three representatives, one from each continent, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And I asked the developed world to name one representative. They named the leader of the US delegation, a wonderful man, Elliot Richardson. And I chaired this final negotiating group of only four colleagues, the United States, Pakistan representing Asia, Mauritius representing Africa, and Peru representing Latin America. And it was in this very small forum of only four representatives that we came to an agreement on the financial terms of the mining contracts. Once the agreement was reached, I then requested the United States to take the outcome back to the developed countries and for them to, to scrutinize the outcome and to agree. I requested my colleagues from the Group of 77 to take the, the uh, referendum agreement back to the Group of 77 and then I kept my fingers crossed. Fortunately, all sides endorsed the outcome. So this is an example of how you successfully miniaturize a negotiating group from a plenary of 190 or 150 to an intermediate group and finally to a very small negotiating group. This concludes the 10 lessons I've learned which I had wanted to share with you. Thank you very much.